We're in 2 Samuel chapter 1 this morning. 2 Samuel chapter 1. I'm going to preach the first 16 verses and divide the chapter up. Normally I preach a whole chapter. There have been a couple in 1 Samuel that uh, we broke up a little bit. But uh, this one I think is appropriate to break. And so we'll just look at the first 16 verses and then deal with David's um, elegy. Uh, in a later sermon. Second Samuel chapter 1. Let's just read the first 10 verses, and uh, but I'll be preaching through verse 16 this morning. Let's stand together uh, for the reading of God's Word. Second Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. These are the words of God. Now it came to pass after the death of Saul, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Amalekites, and David had abode two days in Ziklag, It came to pass on the third day that, behold, a man came out of the camp from Saul with his clothes rent and earth upon his head. And so it was when he came to David that he fell to the earth and did obeisance. And David said unto him, From whence comest thou? And he said unto him, Out of the camp of Israel am I escaped. And David said unto him, How went the matter, I pray thee, tell me? And he answered, that the people are fled from the battle, and many of the people also are fallen and dead, and Saul and Jonathan his son are dead also. And David said unto the young man that told him, How knowest thou that Saul and Jonathan his son be dead? And the young man that told him said, As I happened by chance upon Mount Gilboa, behold, Saul leaned upon his spear, and lo, the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called unto me, and I answered, Here am I. And he said unto me, Who art thou? And I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said unto me again, Stand, I pray thee, upon me, and slay me, for anguish has come upon me, because my life is yet whole in me. So I stood upon him and slew him, because... I was sure that he could not live after that he was fallen. And I took the crown that was upon his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them hither unto my Lord. This morning I want to preach to you riding in on a storm. Talking about the beginning of the reign of King David here. And uh, these are stormy um, circumstances. This is not ideal. uh, The way that you would want to become a king, uh, to have, and especially for David, to have your your country defeated in battle by the Philistines and the way that they were, and to have Saul and Jonathan, who was David's closest friend, at the end of the chapter, David says, "Thy love was, thy love to me was wonderful, passing the love of women." There was a, a tremendous friendship and love between Jonathan and David. And to have this tragic news as the opening introduction of his reign as king um, was certainly a stormy thing. But there are some things I think we can learn from this. I hope that we will this morning. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can open the word together. I thank you that you reveal yourself in the pages of Scripture. And I pray that we would learn to see you even in these historic events and stories here. I pray that we would see you and that we would look Uh, for what you are showing us about yourself here. And I pray that as I preach, that I would uh, make you known to the people 
as well that I could open the word and that it would be a help and blessing to all of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. As the Israelites fled in a panic from the battlefield, a lone Amalekite slunk around the outskirts of the battle battlefield, a safe distance from the heat of war. Whether by fate or by providence, he recognized in the distance King Saul and followed Saul's retreat to Mount Gilboa. He saw when the archers wounded him sore. He stayed out on the fringes while the drama between Saul and his armor bearer unfolded. Perhaps he could hear what Saul was saying, maybe not. But he saw King Saul fall on his sword. He saw that Saul's armor bearer also fell on his sword. I wonder if the Amalekite didn't wait for a little while before he sneaked across that battlefield up to the body just to make sure that Saul was really dead before he got there. When he came to the body, the Amalekite took the king's crown and his bracelet, his armlet, and then he began immediately, as I understand it, the 80-mile journey from Mount Gilboa in the north of Israel, just a little bit south of the Sea of Galilee, to the southernmost region of the wilderness of Judea where David and his men were in the city of Ziklag. A journey of this length would take several days, which was plenty of time for the Amalekite to settle on exactly the right way to make this presentation to David in order to maximize the opportunity that he had. I imagine that the Amalekite saw himself as very lucky. Whether he was tracking King Saul all along or just happened upon him, he got there. He must have gotten there almost immediately after Saul died because he was able to take the crown and the armlet from him. The hostility between Saul and David was famous in Israel. All the people knew about it, and clearly the Amalekite knew where to find David as well, which tells me that Israel knew where David was at the time, which, by the way, reminds me of God's providence in preventing David from joining the Philistines and fighting against King Saul. Imagine if he had been on the side of the Philistines when Saul died. And this is one of countless ways that God ensured that the Messiah would come through the seed of David. But David, uh, I'm sorry, the Amalekite assumed that David would have an interest in the royal crown and the royal um, bracelet, insignias. These are royal insignias. Here, mark that marked the king. He had plenty of time, the Amalekite had plenty of time 
to work through all the various strategies available to him for making this presentation to David. But clearly, clearly the Amalekites saw this as his lucky break, his chance to get status. Because the man refers to himself as the son of a stranger and a Malachite in verse 13. Notice that. So that means that this Amalekite held sojourner status in Israel. He was essentially a resident alien. Which means that he was, as an Amalekite, um, exempt, immune from some of the... Uh, um, God's commandments towards the Amalekites. That's why he's there. But also means that he is subject to all the laws of Israel and in fact knows their customs very well. Which, by the way, is why David held him responsible for the death of Saul later on because he was a stranger, the son of a stranger, a sojourner, a resident alien, subject to Israel's laws. But right now, he held in his hands the means of gaining favor with the king. And he hoped that he would be able to increase his status from resident alien to perhaps even a position in the new king's court. We know that this was the Amalekites' intention because a couple chapters from now, in 2 Samuel chapter 4, David said so in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 10. When one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought good tidings, I took hold of him and slew him in Ziklag, who thought that I would have given him a reward for his tidings. David knew that he was lying to him about this. Well, well, I should say, whether David knew that he was lying to him or not, David knew what this Amalekite was up to. But this Amalekite suffered under the delusion that finding Saul dead on the battlefield and walking off with his royal regalia would help him gain favor with the new administration. Clearly, and this is, this is a thing that you have to remember, Saul had spread a lot of false things, misinformation, false information about David, had slandered David, remember? Because King Saul was telling people that David is hunting for my life. My life is in danger because of David, when in fact the opposite was true. Isn't that the way it often works? Uh, the forces of evil tend to accuse the forces of good of all the evil things that they are aiming for. And that's what Saul did and did it quite effectively because many in Israel believed that David was seeking to overthrow King Saul. And so when King Saul dies, you know, here's this man thinking that, uh, well, the next king, I want to get in good with him. Here's my chance. I wonder how many different ways the Amalekite dreamed up of making the presentation during the 80-mile journey between Mount Gilboa and Ziklag. How many different ways 
he fantasized about the way David would reward him uh, for this gift. Somewhere between Mount Gilboa and Ziklag, uh, the Amalekites settled on a plan. He would tear his clothes, he would put dirt on his head, he would pretend to be in great grief. He would fall at David's feet and do obeisance. And when he gave him the news, he would embellish it a bit. <clears throat> Instead of admitting that he was nothing more than a scavenger on the battlefield, he would paint himself in a more heroic light. He assisted David uh, <clears throat> by helping Saul die. It was assisted suicide. That's what it was. Mercy killing. We all know what the Philistines would do to Saul if they found him alive. And besides that, he fell on a spear and he was still alive, but he wasn't going to survive that. And so really, the Amalekite offered David on a platter the rationalization that he would need so that David could claim the throne and not look back. And the Amalekite said, this is how it went. <clears throat> so the Amalekite has Saul begging an Amalekite to put him out of his misery. And as the Amalekite would have it, he did his duty to King Saul and in a way to David as well because he could confirm with absolute certainty that Saul was dead because as the Amalekite claimed it, he had killed him. And the Amalekite had been sojourning long enough in Israel that he knew who the crown and the armlet rightly belonged to in the death, in the case of Saul's death. Surely David would appreciate this great favor and would be flattered that this man thought of him first, that this man traveled all those miles in order to bring this to him. But of course, we know that this is not how it turned out for the Amalekite in the end. And we would hope that this kind of shenanigan would never turn out well for Amalekites or other kinds of plunderers. But it's important for us to understand that behind the scenes, God is working through all of this. It can be hard not to get caught up in all the players and all the roles that they play, whether it be Saul or David or Jonathan or even this Amalekite. But ultimately, we know that God is doing a work here through all of these things. God is doing a work. Just as God does his work in all of our affairs and through us as well. Because what permeates the story and all the rest of these books of First and Second Samuel is the character of a holy God dealing with and through his people. God uses human events, get this, human events God uses 
to unfold his holy character and make it known to us. And we see that in the word of God. So that while we don't forget about the men in the story, we don't forget about King Saul, we don't forget about Samuel, we don't forget about David, we do become more faithful and loyal to God, the God who raised up Saul, the God who put him down, the God who raised up David. Second Samuel 1 marks the transition between King Saul and King David. And David rides in on a storm, and I, as I showed you, he has he no sooner rescued his family from the Amalekites than Saul dies. In fact, the chapter opens by tying these two events together, and that's kind of what the narrator in First and Second Samuel has been doing, has been preparing us for by switching back and forth between Saul and David and where Saul is. And we left Saul last at the home of the witch of Endor where he is seeking a word from God, and God told him that on this very night, uh, uh, tomorrow in battle, you will die, you and your sons. And then we go to David, who discovers to his horror that the Amalekites have raided Ziklag and carried cap into captivity his wives and the wives of his men and their children, their families. And so David and his men go and slaughter the Amalekites and deliver their families and bring them back to Ziklag. And in the beginning of this chapter, we're told that when David had returned from Ziklag, he was there for two days. And on the third day, this Amalekite shows up. So what that tells you is the 80 mile journey would have been about a two day, three day journey somewhere in there. And so probably King Saul died on the day that David was slaughtering the Amalekites. Isn't that interesting? David is slaughtering Amalekites. An Amalekite is raiding the body and claims to be killing King Saul. King Saul who lost the kingdom because of the Amalekites. Do you see the role that the Amalekites are playing in all of this? So we assume that while David was slaughtering the Amalekites, Saul lay dying on the battlefield. And ironically, it was an Amalekite who was the first to discover the dead body. It's quite possible that this Amalekite had a score of his own to settle with David because, or with Saul because of Saul's treatment of his people, which was at the command of God, but nonetheless. Clearly, though, the Amalekite is more concerned with getting his hands on the crown and on the signet than he is with anything to do with King Saul, certainly has no concern or regard for the body of Saul. He knew what the Philistines would do with Saul's body, which they did, but still, <clears throat> he left it on the battlefield. All this to say that, I mean, these are terrible things. When you think about it, all of this is really terrible, really awful, what's happening. Here, to have the king dying, to have an Amalekite running off with the royal insignias, to have, um, did I say, Saul and Jonathan and his brothers dead on the battlefield, David returning from the slaughter of the Amalekites. This is a storm here. Less than ideal circumstances for taking the throne. 
And yet, it was a storm that God used to put David eventually on the throne of Israel. And through that storm, and this is what I want to get to, through that storm, God teaches some important lessons about Amalekites, about David himself, and most importantly, God teaches us about himself. I want to show you these three things in the message here. First, I want you to see what God teaches about Amalekites. God is good to show us the different kinds of liars that we might encounter in our lives. Okay, now, make no mistake about it. This Amalekite is a liar here. <clears throat> the narrator gives us a true account of the death of Saul in the last chapter of 1 Samuel. Okay, so you have the true account given by the narrator at the end, and then you have the Amalekites' version of it. Now, you know, this is one of those questions. Who are you going to believe? Huh? Anybody lining up to believe the Amalekite? Oh, yeah. That, I am for the Amalekites, right? That's like listening to Chuck Schumer give a press conference and thinking that's the truth right there. All right? This is not how it goes, Okay. We have no reason to think that the word of an Amalekite should be taken over the word of a faithful narrator of Scripture. And besides what David himself a few chapters later said, we can't believe that Samuel's, I'm sorry, Saul's armor bearer would fall on his own sword and die while Saul was still alive. Now this is the narrator in chapter 31 of 1 Samuel shows us the character of this armor bearer. He refuses, refuses to kill Saul. Even though Saul is dying, he refuses to kill him. Okay? He does not kill himself. He does not fall on his own sword until he sees that Saul is dead. So understand what that means. This armor bearer, whose life is all bound up in the life of King Saul, who is sworn to protect the body of King Saul. He is his body man. This armor bearer knows that if Saul doesn't die, the Philistines are going to come and they're going to torture him brutally. And this armor bearer knows that that means that he himself will also be tortured and killed by the Philistines, and the armor bearer is willing to suffer that rather than raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. So there is absolutely no chance at all that the armor bearer was confused about Saul being dead and then fell on his own sword. As some might try to Explain the two right there. I've heard it explained that way, that Saul fell on his sword. Apparently he didn't die all the way. The armor bearer thought he was dead and fell on his sword. I, I don't believe that at all. Not for a minute. This armor bearer shows that he is a man of character, a man of integrity. He would not have fallen on his sword until he was absolutely certain that King Saul himself was dead. <clears throat> remember as much as Saul is painted as a villain in the Old Testament 
He was Israel's king. They honored him. They loved him. His own son, Jonathan, who had had some heated exchanges with his father, still died fighting by his father's side, joined him in the battle. The men of Jabesh-Gilead risked their lives to save the body, the, the mutilated body of King Saul, from any further disgrace as it was nailed to the wall of Bethshan. Nobody in Israel except this Amalekite would think it a good thing to do to Saul what this Amalekite said he did. Nobody was going to raise their sword against King Saul. He is a liar, there can be no doubt. But God lets us see some other things about Amalekites besides the fact that they are liars. They have no regard for the people that they ought to hold in high regard. No regard. This might sound a little controversial in this egalitarian age because I know that you know we're all supposed to be on a all equal, all equal. But Jude describes the same kind of Amalekite spirit as characteristic of an apostate age. Likewise, also, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Now, the Israelites demonstrated that they would gladly die defending the mutilated body of King Saul rather than allow him to be dishonored in any way. This is the spirit that prevailed in the camp of Israel. David himself responds to the news by crying out in grief and sorrow and anguish. But this Amalekite, he serves himself. He treats the death of Saul as a stepping stone to higher status. And that's the way it is with the Amalekites. That's why God ordered their destruction. And there are no Amalekites today. <clears throat> the dark cloud that brought an end to King Saul and gave rise to King David also gives us a right perspective of Amalekites. Nobody, nobody should be accusing God of some injustice because he ordered genocide against the Amalekites. I, for one, agree with God. I believe he's right about the Amalekites. Oh, and one more thing. God saw the lie that the Amalekite told. He saw it. Now David, he couldn't see whether or not, he could not confirm whether or not the Amalekite was telling the truth. But God saw it. God saw not only the lie, but the disregard for his anointed. And God saw to it that this Amalekite received justice. And by the way, David was just and right to order the execution 
of this Amalekite. But that goes with my next point, which I want to make here. I want to point out to you what God teaches us in this story about David. I want you to see some things about him. The Bible shows us the discernment here of David. David saw through the lie. Uh, we don't know that for sure until we get to chapter 4, but when we get to chapter 4, we see very certainly that David recognized what this Amalekite was doing here. No matter, because David recognized that either way, the Amalekite had done something worthy of death. If he lied, David treated him as if he told the truth, as if his version of things is what really happened. If he lied, at the very least, his lie indicated that the, what the man would do if he had the chance and thought that he could get away with it. Now, that is not the kind of man that you want in your court. The kind of man who, when he sees that you're down, will look to see who's going to be the next king, and I'll do him a favor too, all right? That's not who you want like in your court protecting you and around you all the time. You don't want to give him access to you. But David did deal with this man as if he told the truth. And if he told the truth, then certainly he was worthy of death. The Bible shows us then, in showing us this, shows us the honor of King David. And I want you to think about that for a few minutes. David operated on the principle that he must not grasp the kingdom for, his, for himself. He was not grasping, not reaching for it. Though God had given him the kingdom already, had pledged it to him, had anointed him for it. David consistently acted towards Saul with honor, despite the many, many ways that Saul acted towards him in, in sin. He refused to take the matter into his own hands, refused to seek justice or, or vengeance um, on Saul. This was not just like a, you know, David virtue signaling for a little while, like we can all do and put on this show for a little bit. This was an operating principle in David's life. And he didn't just hold himself to that standard. He held himself to that standard and he believed that this should be the standard for everyone, including this Amalekite sojourn. In David's mind, there are just certain things you don't raise your hand against. And the king is one of those. And Saul's own armor bearer, as I said, preferred to face torture and torment himself in order to defend the life of King Saul, instead of taking the easy route and helping Saul to die. Saul's armor bearer, you can be sure, intended to fight to the death to defend his king. How then could an Amalekite so casually end the life of the Lord's anointed? Did the Amalekite kill David's enemy? Certainly, the Amalekite wanted David to think that he had killed his enemy. He hoped that David would be a little grateful. Right? And maybe even wanted David, you know, since he had 80 miles of travel. He thought, I mean, he, he must have reasoned this out really well. 
thought that David should be a little grateful that he had told the story in a way that would make David look innocent. In fact, make it look like it was an honorable thing what he did so that David could feel like he was doing something for the good of the country by elevating this Amalekite. As Dale Davis points out, the Amalekite imagined that David was a little grasping too, just like he was. But clearly the Amalekite doesn't know anything about David. You know, I started to say this earlier, that Saul had slandered David so much that people like this Amalekite believed the lies. In the end, it was the destruction of King Saul, not the destruction of David. But David's character remained true. David himself had passed by several times, passed by the opportunity to kill Saul. He was not about to applaud a man who disregarded the honor that God had given to King Saul and assaulted Saul's life. And so we see the honor of David exposed in this hour of storm. The Bible shows us also the tenderness of David. I want you to notice this because when David received confirmation of Saul's death, right then and there, he tore his clothes along with all the men that were with him and they mourned and wept and fasted until even. And notice that the first person they mourned for was not David's best friend, Jonathan, but was David's worst enemy, King Saul. This wasn't fake either. This was not for show what David and his men did. David was truly grieved. And, And here are a couple ways that we know this. Not just because he tore his clothes, but the way the narrator tells the story. Now, remember, I've been pointing out to you that uh, the, the storyteller in First and Second Samuel in these historic books has a certain method to his madness, if you will. A certain way that he presents the story so that he is in the story and the way he tells it, highlighting what is central to the story. And in this case, the narrator puts verses 11 and 12 in the central place in the text to emphasize that this is the point of the mess of the passage. Now, this is what we would expect. And if we were telling the story, here's how we would tell it. I think we would say something like this. The Amalekite came, told David, you know, I uh, Saul begged me to kill him. So I did. And I brought you this here. Here these are. And David would say, tell me who you are again. How did you not fear to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed? Put him to death. And then when he had dealt with the business, then he would mourn and grieve over King Saul. But that's not the way the story is told. The Amalekite confirms Saul's death and immediately David tears his clothes and mourns along with his men. They grieve and fast until the even, until the evening. We might expect David to dispatch the Amalekite before he gets to the morning, the grieving. You know, do your revenging, then do your grieving. 
But David isn't in as much of a hurry to execute the Amalekite as he is to mourn the death of Saul and Jonathan. The first 16 verses of this chapter form a chiastic outline. The passage begins with the Amalekite and his quote-unquote good news, at least in the Amalekite's mind, and ends with bad news for the Amalekite. He's dead. In between, David has two conversations with the Amalekite. They're broken up between verse 3 and 10 and then between verses 13 and 14. And interrupting this, these two conversations with the Amalekite, we see David mourning very passionately over Saul. And the point, again, in the way the story is told is to tell you that when the death of Saul was confirmed by the Amalekite, David thought of nothing else but that the king of Israel was dead. Oh, how the mighty have fallen, he cried out as he, as he grieved over Saul. Clearly, then, the Bible means to highlight David's grief. And if that doesn't get you, remember that Saul was David's sworn enemy and would have killed David in a heartbeat if he had even half the chances that David had, would have killed David. It's hard to understand, frankly, how David could feel this way towards Saul, except that one thing is very certain. David did not suffer from a hard heart at all. He was not without feeling for the good of his people, for the good of King Saul, his enemy. I understand David's grief towards Jonathan. I, for the life of me, I can't, I can't even imagine how I would ever feel that way towards someone who sought my life the way Saul sought David's. To grieve over that. But again, God uses the dark storm clouds of this terrible event to put on vivid display the tenderheartedness, the compassion of one of his choice servants. I trust that you'll know what to do with this. The Bible also shows us here about David, his wisdom. Remember that David is Israel's anointed king. He has been David's, uh, Israel's anointed king, right? For a while. But of course, he was not the king until Saul was removed from being king. And David had intentionally determined that he would do nothing to take the throne, that God would deal with Saul and that God would put him on the throne. The only thing that stood between David and the throne was King Saul. Now that Saul is dead, David is king. Not officially, but he's the anointed king. And there's no one else who's the anointed king. And so David is the king by right. But here we see David in his first act as king. The first thing he does. Now, now, get this. This should, this should get us. That 
David, David's reign, undeniably the, the greatest king in Israel's history, to this day recognized as the great, Israel's greatest king. But his kingdom, his reign, started with a lie. And that's what 2 Samuel begins with. It begins with a lie. What a way to start, right? <clears throat> now, I've argued that the Amalekite lied, and what I'm about to say does not mean that I've changed my mind. I have not changed my mind, all right? Just so you know. I see some of you doubters out there, like, you're not sure. Did he really lie? I don't know if he lied. It's okay. You think about it. I'm sure that I'll persuade you of my opinion eventually, but maybe for in years. But it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. If the Amalekite lied or not, it doesn't matter. The Amalekite made the claim, and David held him responsible for making the claim. If he lied, then he's even more of a fool, right? But the point I want to make is that this was an act of great wisdom on David's part. Great wisdom. Long after David ascended the throne of Israel, he was still being accused of usurping the throne, of stealing it from Saul and his family, and from being, for being involved in their murder. Remember when Absalom drove him out of Jerusalem, that uh, the one guy, I can't remember his name right now, I was Shimei or someone like that, that stood along the wayside throwing dirt at him and accusing him. He was, he was in fact, a relative of King Saul, accusing David of stealing the throne. So there was a great deal of wisdom on David's part in dealing decisively with this Amalekite. And once again, God used this tragic event to put David's wisdom on display. But I want to shift gears now because the point of all these stories is not to highlight the greatness of any man. Not Jonathan, not Saul, not David. The point is to show you what a great God we have. And behind the scenes, back of all of these things, God is at work. I want you to see it. Let's look at what God teaches us about himself here. It's important to remember that no matter which personalities are discussed in these books of history, the main character in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, the main character is always God. Always God. God is showing himself mighty through the sad tragedies and wise acts of the main characters. Ultimately, God is unfolding his plan for man's redemption. And what impresses us in 1 Samuel, what impresses us is the fact that God intentionally ran the, the, the human line to the Messiah through the house of David and to see in 1 Samuel all the ways that that was nearly destroyed but was not destroyed because God determined to fulfill his will 
and his promise. God works human events towards this central event in history when his son would come to earth and prove his merit to be our redeemer and bear our sins and the penalty for those sins on the cross, dying our death. Jesus died and rose again so that we might be forgiven and received into glory. And so when we consider a passage like this, which right now feels a long way away from the cross, we should still keep in mind that everything, everything God is doing, he has aimed to Calvary. Calvary is the target. Calvary is the goal and what God is doing. Now, this should amaze us. It's staggering to think that God's commitment to his own will includes this commitment to bring us salvation the way God designed it, that God is not giving up his plan, not adjusting it, not modifying it, not reacting to some tragic thing that happened and rewriting it or rerouting it in any way. But God decreed the way he would send salvation to the world and he then determined, resolved to do it that way. This is the kind of God that you and I stand before. God, of course, looks ultimately at the cross, but that doesn't mean that he looks past events like what we discover in 2 Samuel chapter 1. In fact, he ordered this. Just as he orders everything that happens in our world, he ordered this. He works his ultimate plans through the lives of particular people. We can be thankful that his plan includes individual lives because that means that you and I can believe that we also are included in God's plan for redemption in our world. <clears throat> and through God's word, we have the privilege of seeing the way God has dealt with others so that we'll understand what God is doing in our own lives. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, God wants us to know one thing, very important thing. God wants us to know that he keeps his promises. He keeps his promises. Let me show you God keeping his promises. God promised to take the kingdom from King Saul and to give it to another. And in 2 Samuel 1, God kept the promise. God doesn't set aside justice for the sake of mercy and certainly not for the sake of sentiment. He did not spare David and Israel the pain of their slaughtered and mutilated king because he knew that that would be painful for them to have to bear that grief of Saul dying, that that would cause them a lack of peace 
a lack of calm in that time. And understand this. Don't forget it. God raised up King Saul. God chose him. God anointed him. And if God would punish the first king, the one he chose, hand-selected, picked by God himself, and would hold him responsible for his rebellion against God, how much more will he do that for you or for me? You can be certain of this. You can accuse God. You can, you can deny God. You can reject him because he throws people in hell. And that's the popular thing in this day and age. But understand this. Whatever you think, God's not putting it up for a popular vote. Like, you know, 45% of the people that think that uh, God is an ogre because he throws people in hell. God's really not bothered by that. This is what you can be sure of, that God will keep his promise when it comes to that. He will. You can like it or not like it. But if you die having rejected Jesus Christ as your savior, you will spend eternity in hell. And God's not going to check to see how anybody feels about that when it comes time for that. Because he has provided the way for you to be saved through his son and the death of his son on the cross. So there is no excuse for rejecting what Jesus Christ has done for you. And in fact, there is good reason for you to be very careful against that. God is not to be trifled with. On the night Saul visited the witch of Endor, God promised that Saul would die the next day, and God kept that promise. God doesn't let his word fall to the ground. That should sober us. But God also kept his word to David. Remember, God had David anointed. David put Saul on God's hook, remember? David, when he was hunted, when, when he had the opportunity to take vengeance on Saul, to settle the score, to deal with, decisively deal with the, the controversy between him and Saul. He did not do that, but instead called on God to deal with Saul. And God did. <clears throat> God did not let David down. David's life is marked by adversity, trial, difficulty, failure. This is interesting because this is not the way we think of David. But his whole life, I mean, from the moment that he was anointed king, he was on the run. And his enemies piled up when he becomes king. Well, even the transition from Saul to David is very difficult and deadly. And then when he becomes king, he is constantly at war. There's a reason why the Bible calls him a bloody man. And a lot of the bloodshed was not of his choosing. And yet, <clears throat> and here's a spoiler alert to the book of 2 Samuel. What we'll see throughout 2 Samuel, confirmed by countless psalms, by the way, is the gracious way that God providentially protected David over and over was a shield and a buckler and a high tower to David. And many times 
sometimes even because of David's own sin, that we look at it and say, how did it survive? This is how. God kept his promise to David. God kept his promise. What do you and I have? What do we have to rely on? Accept the promises of God. What is the basis of our hope? Accept that what God has promised in his word that he's able to perform. Look, if, you're, if your confidence is in some experience that you've had with God or some, some thing that you did, some prayer that you prayed, you're basing your eternal hope on something very thin, something very unreliable. If you, wanna, if you want a foundation under you, if you want firm footing, if you want to stand on the solid rock, you stand on the promises of God. Because those promises are a rock. Time and again, God took up David's cause and fought against those who fought against David. And this is one such case right here. God was David's shield and buckler. God vindicated David. And God's dealings with David should be a source of encouragement to you and to me as well. Because, and I hate to say it this way because it sounds um, almost conceited. But understand this. That you and me, we are invincible. Invincible. So long as God intends that we should go on living and breathing and serving him, we are invincible. Until the day that God has appointed for our death. And when that day comes, there's no stopping it. So we can live in the fear of the Lord all the day long. No soul can touch me until the day God has decreed as my last. So, for God's sake, I can go to war. I think we see something else, though, about God in this passage. Amalekites don't get a pass. Not from God. They can boast in their dirty deeds, but they cannot get away with it. God sees and God rewards. And God wants us to understand his own commitment to fulfilling his purpose in our world. I hope these passages reinforce in our minds how great our God is. He doesn't watch passively the unfolding of human events. He orders our affairs according to his own most good and gracious will. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delighteth in his way. God teaches us about himself in this passage. Here are a few things then. He still is not okay with the Malachites. Not today either. He hasn't changed his mind. He doesn't look at him in, with a little more sympathy than he once did. He's still committed to bringing in his redemption through the house of David. And providing redemption for mankind 
through the house of David. He is still the covenant-keeping God. As we work through 2 Samuel, we will see many challenges to this that came up. And David, by the way, is no help to the Lord in keeping his covenant. It's not like God said, okay, I want to be a covenant-keeping God. Who can I pick that will make it easier for me to keep the covenant? If he was picking someone, David was the wrong choice. David didn't make it easier. He didn't. We'll see that. God didn't pick the house of David because he needed an assist or wanted an assist. David didn't give him an assist. The house of David needs redemption just the same as every other house. The point is not that God is committed to David. That's not the point. But this is where our thinking gets really messed up. You know, someone said one time that uh, most Christians are perfectly happy to be all about God as long as they believe that God is all about them. And that's the way we look at it. God is not all about David. God is all about God. And that's a good thing. Not bad. You know why that's a good thing? Because God is the only one worthy of being all about someone. I slaughtered that, but still, you get what I'm saying here, all right? That God is all glorious, all glorious, all glory belongs to him. So, of course, God would glorify himself because if God glorified anything else, he would be saying there's something else more worthy of glory than myself. In which case, he wouldn't be God, but he is God. And so we ought to be all about him. He is all about himself. And that's what we see in these historic books. We see God being all about God. And if God is all about God, then we ought to be all about God too. The point is that God is committed to bringing redemption into the world because that's what God has resolved to do. And God does this despite some terrible failures on the part of David. What about us? What about you and me? What do we take away from this? We can trust the Lord in the storms, in the wind and in the waves. What he has promised, he is able to perform. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And this has been the Christian's confidence throughout all history. Last night, our family learned a new hymn. Uh, Maybe we'll introduce it to you uh, sometime soon. The hymn is called, If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. It was written in the early 1600s by uh, a German man by the name of George Newmark. Newmark had scraped and saved to go to college, and when he traveled to the college, he joined with a group of travelers, and the entire group was waylaid and robbed, and all the money that he had saved for college was stolen 
along with everything else except the clothes on his back. Destitute, Newmark searched for a job, but was not able to find any means of employment, even to feed himself. He was starving to, to death, his clothes turning to rags, and he was befriended by a pastor, and the pastor helped connect him to a wealthy family who hired him on the spot to tutor their kids. And on the day that Newmark was hired, he wrote this hymn, If Thou But Suffer God to Guide Thee. He did the same thing. He scraped and saved while he worked as a tutor for this wealthy family, and then he went off to college, as his goal was. And when he arrived at the college, within a few days of his arrival, a fire destroyed everything that he had. And Newmark continued on, scraped and saved again, more confident now that God would take care of him and meet his need. Now the hymn has seven verses. I'm not going to read all seven to you. If thou but suffer God to guide thee and hope in him through all thy ways, he'll give thee strength whate'er betide thee and bear thee through the evil days. Who trusts in God's unchanging love builds on the rock that naught can move. Only be still and wait his leisure in cheerful hope with heart content to take whate'er thy father's pleasure and his discerning love hath sent. Nor doubt our inmost wants are known to him who chose us for his own. God knows full well when times of gladness shall be the needful thing for thee, when he has tried thy soul with sadness and from all guile has found thee free. He comes to thee all unaware and makes thee own his loving care. Nor think amid the fiery trial that God hath cast thee off unheard, that he whose hopes meet no denial must surely be of God preferred. Time passes and much change doth bring and sets a bound to everything. Sing, pray, and keep his ways unswerving. Perform thy duties faithfully and trust his word though undeserving. Thou yet shalt find it true for thee. God never yet forsook in need the soul that trusted him indeed. Praise the Lord. God is faithful. We can be confident in his faithfulness because God, first of all, is faithful to himself. And because he's faithful to himself to be who he is and do what he said that he'd do, we can be absolutely certain that God will be faithful to us and he's promised to redeem us.